0: Thanks for tuning in to the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast, a podcast from Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy, where, through the Entrepreneurship and Sustainability Program, we are training the entrepreneurs of the future. Now, I hope you are all set to take some amazing notes on this episode, because today's guest, Scott Collins, the CEO and Chairman of Linkage, is going to go over a wide range of material with us. We're going to talk about everything from empowering your team, leadership and vision, to understanding customer-centric design and how empathy plays a role in that, as well as understanding the role of ideation and innovation in crafting a business. So joining me today is Scott Collins. Uh, Scott is the chairman and CEO of Linkage. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: Uh, Scott, can you tell us a little bit, tell our listeners about Linkage and what Linkage does as a company? Yeah, sure. Uh, Linkage is a
1: a multifaceted health services business actually owned by 12 senior living providers. And we have three primary lines of business. Uh, We do group purchasing. So we leverage the economies of scale across roughly 800 communities around the country to negotiate discounts on things like food, medical supplies, pharmaceuticals, and so forth that they purchase. We also have a market research company that helps people people better understand the aging population. And so a lot of our research picks up where most other research leaves off. Uh, We take that 65 plus population and break it down into five-year increments All the way north of age 100 so we do a lot of work around understanding technology utilization innovation as it relates to older consumers and then finally we have a venture business and through two private equity funds we've raised close to 64 million dollars in capital to invest in early stage businesses with products services and technology all geared towards older adults in the healthcare space
0: well clearly you have a lot of experience in all kinds of different areas of business and i'm curious scott You didn't start out chairman and CEO. There's obviously a journey there. There's obviously a path you had to sort of take. And would you mind walking us through uh, some of the different steps your career path has taken?
1: Sure. Uh, Started out actually um, in commercial property management and then moved into our family textile business and did that for a few years, but realized that uh, there was something else I wanted to do. I just wasn't sure what it was. And so moved to Cincinnati, Ohio with my wife Nadia and our first son Gabriel, in 1996 to start uh, a, a technology company with a roommate of mine from college, also another CHCA family. And um, we had this idea, it was the early stage of the days of the internet, that we would create an online auction company that would help people either sell things that they had or that businesses could use to liquidate excess inventory and um, started working on that. actually, we were going to go raise capital. And at the last minute thought, man, that's a dumb idea. Who's ever going to go on the internet to use an online auction site? (laughs) And and, well, we know how that ended. Uh, After that, I spent uh, the next five years of my career with GE Capital in uh, a number of different roles, finally there in heavy equipment finance before they shut our division down, not too long after 9-11 and had a friend. Uh, on the board of this this early stage company, which is now known as Linkage. And he invited me to come over. They had a director of member services job, which sort of sounded like something on a cruise ship that I didn't want to do.
0: Sure. And,
1: um, but out of out of respect for him, I went and listened. And it made total sense. And once I started uh, back in May of 2002, and really got on the inside, I th- told Nadia, I'll do this for probably a couple of months, then have to go get a real job and uh, almost 19 years later here i am
0: wow wow that's that's crazy that that story especially you know online auction uh who would who would go for that and uh i'm sure that's just one of the many areas uh, where you look back and you're like well if my career had taken that path but i imagine there's also the extent of looking back and saying wow i mean look at look at the path that brought me here and you're now in a role that encompasses leadership it encompasses vision for the company and To what extent would you say that a percentage of your day or your year is geared more toward say, crafting a vision, articulating a vision versus the sort of daily minutia that might pile up?
1: Yeah, I would say it's probably the 80-20 rule. Uh, 80% on vision and reimagining. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing is trying to identify seemingly random dots and connecting them t- together in a way that others haven't really thought of before. Um, and so over the years, I've been blessed to be able to travel and meet a lot of people around the country and develop a network of really smart, innovative thinkers. And what I've found is that one, being a good leader means being a good servant. You know, being willing to roll your sleeves up and get dirty and and do everything that needs to be done. Um, The other is making sure that as you begin identifying those elements that get coalesced into a vision and then turn into strategy and ultimately execution, that you empower people within the organization to do their very best every day, give them the tools that they need to succeed, make sure the systems of accountability are there and then kind of get out of the way and let them do what they need to do. Um, But to your point around vision and um, really understanding the role that innovation can play in either disrupting a company or disrupting an industry, I spend an awful lot of time doing stuff like that.
0: I love what you said about empowering people. I think so often when we visualize or picture the leaders of these organizations we see people who just kind of sit by themselves and they think up ideas and they bring those ideas to fruition themselves and it's like the genius label that's you know everyone wants to be the steve jobs and all this but what you're saying is leadership is really about empowering the people on your team to come alongside that vision with their ideas and their strategies And then you create a working model. Is that, I mean, is that, is that sort of what you're suggesting?
1: Uh, it's, it's absolutely spot on the first, the first model you articulated, you know, that's something known as the genius with a thousand helpers. And what I found and the research bears it out is that businesses who are led like that don't tend to have nearly the amount of ongoing and sustained success. They may be able to succeed for a little while. um, when that leader is in place, but once that person leaves, um, they tend not to be able to maintain that same trajectory because nobody else inside the company has been empowered um, to think boldly or differently. Their true capabilities haven't been unleashed and they haven't been necessarily empowered to, to sort of take whatever is being done in the company today and elevate it to a different level. So we talk a lot about level five leadership in, in, in the innovation space and level five leaders, as you said, you know, they, they, they have vision, but it's connected to reality. They they work hard to support their people, empower them, get out of the way, but make sure the accountability is there. But if you're going to fail, fail fast, learn from it. Um, and ultimately, they don't care who gets the credit, right? And and that's that's a that's an important piece from a leadership perspective is to be humble enough to say, you know what, I want to elevate everybody's game, and to do that. I need to put them in positions to succeed. I'm I'm
0: really glad you brought up level 5 leadership. Many of our listeners will be familiar with this from Jim Collins and his work and how the leader, you know, the level 5 leader at least is the one who looks out the window when people say here's success and looks out the window and says here's the team, but looks in the mirror when there's a problem. And I think what you said earlier about servant leadership really uh, really hits home for that um, another concept that, that uh, Jim Collins brings up in his book is that of the flywheel and how, you know, you've got this process that seems insurmountable and you begin working and working and working, and slowly that flywheel begins to turn and then it builds momentum. And everyone says, hey, like, <laughs> how would you do that? And, it, you know, the answer is, "Well, you know, there's a lot of work behind this. And, you know, people will, will look at uh, people of success and, and say, oh, overnight success or, oh, you're so lucky. And, And you hear these leaders say well you know you didn't see the last 10 years of hard work that i put in so i'm curious what has your experience been with the flywheel concept with regard to uh, the businesses you've been involved with and how that's been uh, perhaps a principle that has worked for you or 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 not
1: yeah uh, great point so as i look at our core business which is group purchasing for me um early on in my tenure after becoming ceo back in 04 I I recognize that our whole job is to save people money, but even if I was able to save providers 80 or 90% on the things that they purchase, I could never cost cut them into long-term sustainability. So we started to explore, how can we create investment opportunities that are gonna build out new streams of revenue to help support the ongoing mission of, initially, our owners, the not-for-profits, but then more broadly, other customers of Linkage. And as we started to get more involved, I spent a lot of time out in Silicon Valley um, over the course of probably the last 11 or 12 years, really understanding uh, how investment works, how innovation works, how technology businesses go from startup to scale, and then use that as a way to begin informing our own investment strategy. And so over the years, while the core business is still incredibly important to us, what I found was it was really building a distribution channel for products and services that we hadn't invented yet or hadn't had the opportunity to invest in. And so now, as we look at those companies in which we invest, our network of customers for the group purchasing organization make a ready-built marketplace for us to sell those businesses or their products into. So it's this really nice turnkey effect. Um, Along the way, what we also found, and that led to the birth of our uh, research company, is that so many of the entrepreneurs we were working with had no idea about the marketplace they were trying to sell into. Hmm. So most of their stories started with, boy, when I was taking care of my mom or my grandmother, I wish I had this technology widget to help my life be easier. And when you ask them, how many people did you test that concept with? And who's gonna pay for this? How do you think you're gonna scale that? It was largely the same answer, which is, I don't know. And that's how we recognized there was an opportunity to really help early stage, as well as mature businesses, better understood understand this largely ignored consumer. And along the way, uh, that leads to really our newest initiative, which is Linkage Labs. So over the last 10 to 12 years of seeing innovation in our country as it relates to healthcare and the older adult population being done in silos. Uh, silos defined either geographically, so lots of innovation happening out in uh, Northern California, a lot in Chicago, good amount up in you know, the Massachusetts area, and then certainly through strategic partnerships I have with folks around the world, I started seeing all this innovation, which looked very similar, but had no idea that there were you know, counterparts doing the exact same thing half a country away. So that was one type of siloism, ge- geography. The other that's in our world is really depending on what type of provider you are. So. Hospital people innovate with hospital people, senior living with senior living, home care with home care, and never the three shall meet. And so part of what I I also sensed was some of the barriers to scale are around the economic models. So in our world, the way that looks is, does insurance pay for it? Is it a private individual paying for it? And then finally, there are a lot of regulatory hurdles and burdens because of legislative, environments, either at the state or federal level, that create barriers to to scale. And so the creation of Linkage Labs was really to say, can we, instead of waiting on a smart entrepreneur somewhere to come up with a solution to a problem they think we have in healthcare, we know what the problems are. Can't we build a cross-functional coalition from throughout the entire ecosystem of healthcare and say, hey, can we solve for this so that the solution works in hospitals as well as it works in skilled nursing as well as it works in home health? And along the way, can we bring the payers, people who are ultimately gonna either pay for this through insurance, along with the public policy or legislative arena at the fuzzy front end of innovation so that as we're innovating things from the ground up on a user-centered basis, right, putting that consumer in the center of the innovation and then building the ecosystem out around them. So that as we build the solution, it is relevant across the entire marketplace that is linkage labs. And that's what I've been working on probably the last two years and building out this network of partnerships um, from throughout those different stakeholder groups to make sure that as we build solutions for the future of healthcare, it, it works really well. Sadly, Um, COVID-19 has brought about some much-needed and welcome changes in healthcare, but had we had more of this coalition mindset around innovation 20 years ago when telehealth was first invented, it wouldn't have taken something like COVID-19 to help providers and payers figure out how to get on the same page and scale these solutions for the well-being of the general public.
0: I love everything that you said there, and and it sounded like I, I kept hearing again and again, the customer, the consumer, the customer, the consumer. And you know, so often, I think we focus on the idea or maybe even the problem itself, but not necessarily the customer. And one of the concepts that we're really covering here at uh, Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy in the business and entrepreneurship program is this idea of customer-centric design. And it really starts with something you already touched on, which is empathy, And, uh, you know, you mentioned that a few of the people you talked to, they had experienced this with their aging parent or with their grandmother. And that really kind of is that initial link or or, or touch point of empathy, which then leads to understanding the customer. So when you are working with your team, how do you handle questions of of empathy? Do you, I mean, do you conduct customer interviews? Do you uh, go out and kind of find out firsthand from people, what these problems are? What, what does that look like in a company like yours?
1: Yeah, we do. Um, and it, it takes on a number of different um, forms, whether it's in our day-to-day business, just being really open and being great observers and listeners, You know, seeing our customers in the wild, so to speak, um, really helps us better understand those acute needs and then asking a lot of discovery questions. And going deep, uh, especially with older adults, you have to do that because at certain stages of their life, there's certain things that they don't perceive that they actually need. Um, and it takes a while to be able to get down in there and really understand uh, what what need is driving certain behaviors and how to, how to create solutions that are really gonna resonate with different consumers. Um, the other thing that's really important for us because through all of our investment activities in the private equity world, We've seen many times where a great solution doesn't win because there isn't a clear understanding and enough work done up front to appropriately position the product in the market, either from a messaging or pricing perspective. So a lot of times inferior products will win because they have a better go to market strategy. And unfortunately what we've seen is that so many times entrepreneurs early on fall so in love with the product that they're developing that. Any investment that they get goes into more and more product development. They want to build the perfect widget, and they tend to forget how to build a world-class organization around it to take that widget to market and not only scale it, but be able to provide the world-class customer service it takes to delight customers after that widget's been introduced into the marketplace.
0: Scott, I want to circle back to something you mentioned when you were talking about actively listening. And you said you really have to drill down with these discovery questions. Can you can you give us an idea of maybe the difference between kind of what we might think of as a standard customer interview question and what makes a good discovery question?
1: Yeah, um, things like uh, if you had a widget that did this, would you use it? Um, as opposed to if you understand what the widget is being designed for, really digging into the why. So if the answer to that question is, yes, I would, why would you use it? What problem does it help solve? And going deeper into understanding the behavior that drives either the decision to purchase a product or not purchase a product.
0: So when we, again, talk about customer-centric design and we start with empathy, the next phase that we sort of explain in the program is defining that problem which it sounds like these discovery questions are leading the interviewer to do to find out here is that problem and then that's what can lead to ideation which really is that generating ideas and this i think is what's so crucial for many of our entrepreneurs many of our listeners is getting to that ideation stage and perhaps it's they jump to it you know they they jump to ideation before even understanding the customer and the problem. And then it's like, you know, what's the next big idea? So what, what advice would you have about about the stages or about how to handle ideation?
1: One definitely get your target audience involved when you start whiteboarding an idea. Um, you know, we call it the fuzzy front end of innovation and we've actually facilitated this with older adults. Uh, we did this a number of years ago. And what was amazing was we, we actually worked with a cross-functional team of grad students from Ohio State, so engineering, marketing, nursing, other healthcare folks. We brought these teams of students together into three different cohorts, and we said, hey, you know, what would you want to solve for as it relates to healthcare and aging? And then here's what we want you to do. We want you to take groups of older adults and put them on your innovation team. And what was really interesting was the idea that they initially thought was going to turn into a product that they felt was incredibly important for that demographic almost never was the product that they ended up developing.
0: Hmm.
1: So this idea of engaging with your target audience early on can do so much to drive the right type of design process. The other thing that we've seen over the years is entrepreneurs fall in love with the idea, with the product, with the widget, with the technology. And even when presented with compelling evidence that that solution isn't going to work, they continue to pursue that concept. And so I think being empathetic, being a good listener and observer, and being willing to throw your preconceived ideas about what it is you're inventing complete that completely out the window based on what you're observing from your target market Um, and not falling in love with that thing so much that you're unwilling to listen to what the marketplace is telling you.
0: So again, it sounds like level five leadership. You got to have that humility to say, my idea might not be the best one. And that's, that's hard. I mean, especially if you've invested a lot of your life in that. Yeah. and, And
1: it's hard for entrepreneurs because they're they're the ones who are bold and who are taking these big risks and swinging for the fences. And, you know, they have this real belief, uh, to their core in what they're doing, which they have to have to fight through all the challenges they're going to face along the way. Um, but the ones who really, I think stand out are the ones who can say, yeah, here's, here's the finished product. It's nothing like what we thought we were going to build. But what we've ended up putting out into the market is so much better than what we ever conceived uh, before we actually started engaging with people who were going to either be the customer or the influencer, or in some cases, both.
0: So when we talk about ideation, the term innovation inevitably comes up and the two are often used together. And one thing that I hear people say when it comes to innovation is it really starts or often comes down to when you are willing to question assumptions, when you're willing to say, here's, here's these things that, you know, we just have always operated on. And yet what if they're no longer true or what if they never were true? How has that been a part of your business strategy or your vision leadership um, questioning assumptions?
1: Uh, we, we look at challenge the status quo every single day and not to be flippant about it or to do it just for the state sake of being challenging to something, but identify those things that consistently over long periods of time, everybody acknowledges this just doesn't work, but because that's the way it's always been done. That's the way people continue to do it. And inside there. What I think is really important is, and I mentioned this early on, is bringing together a very diverse group of thinkers as it relates to this. So so many times you see industries disrupted from outside. It's very rare that an industry is disrupted from inside by long-term industry participants. So how do you identify those thought leaders, those brilliant observers who are gonna come alongside you and look at reality from a different perspective and say, you know, why are you doing it like this? How come for the last 30 years, the healthcare industry has done something this way? You know, if you just did it this way, it would have a completely different and profound impact on the entire industry. That's how, you know, we we really look to find those diverse thought leaders, observers, and, and participants along the way that can help you know, Even us, we like to think we're innovative. We like to think that we look at the world differently, but even we fall into the same old mindset and the same traps over time. So we're constantly trying to figure out how do we shake up our own thinking? How do we, how do we create discomfort among ourselves so that we're not falling back on the same old ways of observing challenges and opportunity?
0: What you just said reminded me of something I heard uh, Simon Sinek say um, in an interview over his recent book, The Infinite Game. And he was giving this example of Blockbuster and Netflix. And when Netflix started, it was, you know, you you send the rental in the mail and the streaming platform is being developed. And the CEO of Blockbuster went to his board and said, you know, I think we need to jump on board with this. We need to really like, this is going to be it. And the board just said, no, that's, you know, A lot of our revenue comes from late fees. We, you know, we can't, we can't do this. So my question for you is like, as, as a CEO, as a leader, you have this diverse team, you have diverse thinking and someone comes to you with this idea and it's either intensely innovative or it's just awful, you know, and it could tank the company. I mean, what, what do you do when, when you have to make that decision?
1: It's a great question. Any given day uh, the CEO is not usually the smartest person in the company, right? It's being able to ensure that you have visibility into so many different aspects, not just of your company from an internal perspective, but a deep understanding of how you provide value to your customers. And so I would say, as we look at ideas that come in, I don't really reject anything out of hand on its face. I try to understand what drove someone to come up with this idea. Did they see something that maybe I didn't? And if so, what was it? Because my knee jerk reaction might be, that's ridiculous. It'll never work, but they brought it to me for a reason. And it's incumbent upon me as a leader to dig deeper and understand why they think this is a good idea. Now, ultimately you get into it. And it's a judgment call either. It's a great idea that, the timing is wrong. It's a great idea that just would eat up too many company resources. Um, or it's a great idea that we should actually put some effort up against to really flesh out whether or not this is going to be something that we should pursue as a business.
0: Now, obviously, being a leader in a business where people feel comfortable bringing ideas like this to you, there's clearly a culture around innovation, uh, around innovation, innovative thinking, and so on. And I'm curious, how how do you create that kind of culture where people feel motivated or rewarded to continually innovate versus, say, a culture of, you know, fear? Like, like, like let's say there's a culture that says you have to hit these numbers by this quarter to get your raise or, you know, <laughs> to keep your job. You're not going to have that innovation there. So how can you create a culture where people feel safe and inspired to innovate?
1: Uh, it's a great question. Um, and I, you know, GE um, was very much by the numbers and, and, you know, you were constantly uh, reminded of what your financial objectives were with linkage. One of the ways we do that is by focusing on the outcome. You know, what is it that we want to have happen uh, for the benefit of our, our employees and our customers. And what we found is that when we shift the focus from Quantifiable numbers, whether that be number of clients, number of widgets sold, revenue, profit, and instead put the focus on the people and making sure they're successful. Uh, we've been rewarded with more business than than we could have imagined. Um, we really try to make sure that our team um, understands that we want them to be successful, and we're doing anything and everything we can to empower that. And they have the freedom and flexibility. Um, to do what's right for the customer every time. They don't have to go back and ask their boss, and they don't have to come back and ask me. Um, And some of that's built up over time. Uh, Early on in our company's history, I was kind of the answer man. Anybody had a question, they would come to me. And what I found was, more often than not, I think the people asking the question knew the right answer. I just wasn't asking them what they would do. And so I started probably 10 years ago reversing it. And when they would ask me a question, my response was, tell me what you would do. And 99.9 times out of 100, it's exactly what my answer would have been. And so they build up this confidence in knowing that I, I do know how to do this. I know that ultimately, if it's the right thing for the customer, I'm never gonna get in trouble for that, even if it costs the company money. And we've always said, we will always do what's right for our clients, even if it means it costs us money, because down the road, they'll they'll stick with us and they'll reward that that faithfulness
0: i love that answer it sounds like you know you're working to build confidence and trust ultimately in your clients but you do that by building that confidence in your team and i think so often we ignore the you know the people who are actually doing the work and we focus just on the customers to the detriment of the team so you're saying it starts with the team and then that ends up rewarding the customers in the end
1: you got it. If if we can't build an enduring company based on delighting our team, then they're never going to go that extra mile to delight our customers.
0: That is awesome. I love the way that, that you worded that. Well, let me ask you this, Scott. And and you've been very gracious with your time today and in sharing this wonderful information with us. Many of our listeners are beginning their life's journey, finding their life's work, and pursuing a variety of different careers, some of them future entrepreneurs, some of them a wide variety of fields, what advice would you have to them when it comes to looking at the vast array of work they'll be involved in, but how many of it surrounds the concepts we've discussed today? What would you say is some of the advice you would pass on to the listeners?
1: I would spend as much time learning about what it is you love and what you're passionate about as I would learning technical skills or things that would equate to how to. There's lots of things that you can do, but until you really take the time to figure out what you're passionate about and love to do, it's always going to feel like work. Uh, I, I once heard somebody say, uh, "If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life." Mm. And I don't think we stop to spend enough time to really figure out what what we're passionate about. And instead, we we learn a bunch of skills and then figure out where we can make money and and where I can apply those. But so many times, kids go to college, and you know, if you ask them. What are you majoring in undeclared? What do you want to do when you get out? I don't know. And um, that's where I think uh, taking a step back and really trying to figure out, what do I love? And then build your skills and, and focus around that.
0: That is great advice. Thank you, Scott. And, uh, and thanks again. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, so Scott Collins uh, was our guest today. Scott, thank you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Um, Scott is the chairman and CEO of Linkage. And, uh, Scott, one final question, where can we go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Uh, sure. LinkageConnect.com. or if, uh, you look me up, if any of your students are on LinkedIn, uh, be sure to send me an invitation and I'll be happy to connect with you.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much, Scott. That concludes this episode of the CHCA entrepreneurial podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, I want you to do me a favor. Go to the App Store, go to wherever you listen to your podcasts, and leave us a favorable review. And then go ahead and subscribe, because we have a lot of great episodes coming up, and we don't want you to miss any of our amazing guests.